The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Our friends, good morning. Let's go ahead and prepare for our time in the Word. You can grab your seats. Good to be with you. We're going to be in Psalm 57 today. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of the Bibles on the seats next to you or around you. That's our gift to you. We're going to be in Psalm 57. If you open somewhere near the middle of the Bible, you'll find yourself near to the Psalms. The chapters are the large numbers. The verse numbers will be the smaller numbers on the page. So we're going to be in the book of Psalms, Psalm 57, chapter 57. We'll read, and then I'll invite you to give thanks together for the word of the Lord. Psalm 57. To the choir master, according to do not destroy, a mitcom of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for you, in you my soul takes refuge, in the shadows of your wings. I take refuge to the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Since the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word and do pray that as we study this psalm, we would see most clearly your help and salvation which comes from heaven, namely your Son, Christ, whom you have sent to reconcile us to you, who took on the form of a servant, who became for us the very thing which condemned us, so that we may be righteous in your sight through his blood and sacrifice. So, Lord, we pray that as we study this psalm of prayer and praise of trust and a promise that we would be reminded of the true promise we have in Christ. That David, as he prays, would spur us on to pray and live this prayer in a truly glorifying way. And may the cry of our heart, Lord, be that your glory would be exalted above the earth and your glory would cover the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The main idea from the psalm this morning, if you're taking notes, is this. That the Lord 
is exalted in mercy. The Lord is exalted in mercy. By that I mean, when the Lord is gracious, when God is merciful, when He acts kindly and deals graciously with His people, the knowledge of His character, of His grace, of His mercy, of who He is as a loving, kind, and faithful God will be known. And His character and His glory will spread and cover the earth. Psalm 57 is a prayer that the mercy and the grace that David receives according to God's promise would not only be felt and experienced by him in his own distress, but more importantly, that the evidence of God's glory would be seen in his deliverance and the glory and the kindness and the mercy of God, the testimony of his character would spread and cover the earth. So David's chief concern is not primarily then for his deliverance from his enemy. He trusts God. He knows the promise. He was anointed by Samuel to be king. He had no doubts about what would happen in God's own time. No, his primary concern was the glory of God. The name of God and his glory does he spread over all nations, over the world. And so Psalm 57 is a prayer and a reminder that our Lord is exalted in mercy. That He is a merciful God, and in the act of mercy, He is exalted in our experience of it. And Christ, then, is the face of God's grace and truth. As Christians, we believe that God's most merciful act to us as men is not simply delivering us from one circumstance into another, not simply the prospering of our lives where we might have been in poverty before, but the most merciful act of God in all of creation, in all of history, is the sending of Christ. And He is the radiance, we're told, the radiance of the glory of God, Hebrews chapter 1. Christ is the exact imprint of His nature in the radiance of the glory of God. What does that mean? The glory of God is all that is beautiful, right, and perfect about God. It is who He is on display. The writer of Hebrew tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, which means if you want to behold God's glory, the psalmist prays for the glory to be over the earth, we look not to some shining light, but to the face of Christ, who is the face of God Himself incarnate. He is God's grace and truth. The Apostle John tells us this in chapter 1, verses 14, the familiar passage where it says, The Word, Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. Then he says this, And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Christ is sent from the Father to reveal, to demonstrate, and to radiate the glory of God so that it may cover the world. And in Christ, God then shows himself to be glorious. We know that God is to be glorified and is full of glory because Jesus himself has been glorified. Later on in the Gospel of John, chapters 12 particularly, Jesus prays several times. He says, Father, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's speaking of his death. He prays that, that the Lord would use Christ 
in his death, as we read this morning from the New Testament, that he would use the death of his son to glorify himself. And the father speaks to Christ, his son, and says, I have glorified you. So the point right at the gate here, we are a Christian church after all, is that Psalm 57 speaks not primarily of David's deliverance or abstractly about God's glory, but most pointedly and specifically to Jesus, the Son of God, who is glorified in his death and his resurrection, which then gives us hope and marching orders to glorify God in our lives. So the Lord is to be exalted in mercy. God the Father sent Christ the Son to suffer the wrath against sin that we deserved, that he might, as a perfect sacrifice, make atonement for our sin. And though he died, he was raised by the power of God, proving the acceptable sacrifice that he offered to the Father, and therefore rendering righteousness and peace and reconciliation for us to God. That is the gospel. And so those who believe on Christ, who say, that's what I need to be saved, not my own works or strength or power. I can't save myself from my own situation. I need Christ and his sacrifice to cover me from my sin and the power of the Spirit to animate me and equip me to live righteously before God. That's what it means to believe the gospel, to be a Christian. And Psalm 57, like many others, teach us that Christ is the means by which we are delivered. And the hope we have that Christ may be glorified in our hearts comes from the cross. The Lord is exalted in mercy. So the Lord is exalted in mercy. We see this as true in two specific ways in our soul. First, we see that God is the refuge of our soul. And secondly, that God is the reward of our soul. God is the refuge of the soul. And God is the reward of the soul. In the first five verses, we see God praised and exalted as the refuge of David's soul. Here's what it says there in verse 1, that he's in the midst of storms of destruction. Verse 4, he's surrounded in the midst of lions. And in the midst of these circumstances, troubling circumstances, we see from the title, he's in a cave fleeing from Saul and his men who want to kill him because Saul was jealous over the anointing of David, rebelling against God, seeking to defeat his enemies or his competitors. David hides in the dark, damp cave, and yet he cries out to the Lord in the midst of such destruction, and he places his trust and his hope in God. And specifically we see in verse 1, that he cries out to the Lord to be merciful. He, he calls upon the character of God as merciful. And it's in the mercy of God that David says he will take refuge. In you, my soul takes refuge, and in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge. There's two, two images that come to mind to the reader here of the Psalm. One would be the wings of the cherubim that are set on the Ark of the Covenant that rests in the tabernacle that was set there to show that God's presence dwelled among God's people. There was no temple at this point. There was just a tabernacle, a, a tent. David sought to rectify that, but the Lord told him it would be his son who would build the temple. So there's no temple, but a tent 
But in this tent, you have the Ark of the Covenant in which God has saw fit to allow His glory to dwell, His, His presence to dwell. And on the top of the Ark were cherubims, these winged creatures that were really the, the, sim, the symbolism of which would show that God is above all, that God is not like us, that He is guarded by winged creatures and angels with flaming swords, that He is altogether mighty. So the imagery would bring to mind under the shadow of the wing of God in which David takes refuge is in the presence and the glory of God which would protect him and sustain him in his circumstances. But perhaps more commonly, David's simply thinking of a hen who covers her brood with her own wing and protects and shelters him from storms that would come. Either way, we know here that the idea here is that God protects David. It is not the cave which is David's refuge from his enemy. It is God who is his refuge. In you, my soul takes refuge. Not simply in your strength, not in the things you'll do for me, not in the sword or the power that you deliver through other means, but in you, O God, my soul will take refuge. I am protected by you. In the shadow of your wings, your presence and your glory, I stand sheltered from the storms of destruction until they pass by. This is based on God's character and nature. Look at the end of verse 3. That God will send out His steadfast love and His faithfulness. Now several weeks ago we talked about this word hesed. This is the, the Hebrew word that's translated here, steadfast love. It's loving kindness. It's this deep abiding abounding mercy of God. This word hesed. This is, this is out from God's very heart or nature. Who He is as God flows and radiates loving kindness, steadfast love and faithfulness. He says, I take refuge in you, Lord, because you send out what comes forth from you is loving kindness steadfast, abiding, and abounding love, faithfulness. Faithfulness to what? Look in verse 2. I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills His purpose for me. So there's a particular purpose God has for David. He was anointed to be king to take over for Saul, who had turned to idolatry and wickedness, and he was the one to bring Israel into glory into the height of its time. He was the one to, to, to bring worship and to restore worship to God's people. And of course, in 2 Samuel 7, we know the promise, particularly for David, to have a lineage that would ultimately lead, under the preservation of God, to Christ, his Savior. So a kingdom would be established. There's a purpose for David and his lineage. And he says, God is going to be faithful to that promise. And therefore, I cry out to God Most High, who fulfills his purpose for me. On the basis of his steadfast love and faithfulness, I pray for mercy. I pray that you would give my soul rest and refuge in your presence and the shadow of your wing. So in the midst of these circumstances, he trusts and hopes and rests in the hesed of God. There's two primary things about God we learn from this psalm. This is theology proper, who God is. Notice in verse 2 he is called God Most High. 
God, most high, your translation like mine might have those capitalized, each word, because this is a title. God, most high. This isn't simply an adjective or some sort of superlative to say, God, you're so great. This is a title of God that speaks of the transcendence of the Lord above all. God most high. This is, this is that none is higher than God in rank. None is greater than God in dignity or authority in power. There is no mightier warrior than the Lord. There is no trusted dignitary or ruler than God. There is no more powerful force beyond God. He has unsurpassed greatness and unrivaled omnipotence. Completely powerful, God most high, means that none can outrank him or supersede him. God is, quite simply, above. In terms of the hierarchy of power and glory in all things, strength, God ranks on top. As if he's even in the category with anybody else. God most high is a phrase, a title that says God is greater than any conceivable strength or concept of strength that could be imagined. But David demonstrates that this God most high is not so high that he removes himself from us. He is not a far off, austere general who says, I'm greater and therefore you peons must simply trust. But in his greatness, in the exalted nature of God most high, he is not remote. Instead, he makes himself accessible. He is not far off. God Most High does not mean He is so far a distance from His people, but rather that He is unhindered in His helping of His people. We pray this when we pray the Lord's Prayer. We recognize that our Father is in heaven. That phrase is simply to say, you are in a position of authority to help us. Because the rest of the prayer is a prayer and a petition to help, to act, to deal kindly, to strengthen, to provide, to sustain. But we begin the prayer as Jesus teaches us, our Father in heaven, because heaven is the place in the seat of God most high. His dignity, His authority, and His power is affirmed in a statement like this. And yet His closeness is also affirmed. So we have what we call the transcendence of God, that God is, is transcendent beyond and above all things and the imminence of God, that is, the nearness of God, both far off, because He is distinct from creation, greater than all, and imminent, near, because the greatness of God is leveraged for the help of His people. And so He is not hindered in His ability to help, to care, to act. He may be far off in terms of our ability to be like Him, in terms of greatness, authority, or power, but He is eminently near, and His kindness, His love. So when we pray, our Father in heaven, we are praying the affirmation of God's strength and glory and power, but also the desire of God's heart to serve and love through Christ. 
And so it is from this exalted position that God sins from heaven to save. There in verse 3 in the beginning. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me or whose feet catches up to mine. God's exalted position in the heaven affirms and guarantees for us that he is able to help and his help cannot be unhindered or thwarted. That God, as all-powerful, acts. And when he acts, his mercies and his grace will become, for us, realities. So friends, what we can and should expect, as David does here, is that God will work mercies in your life on your behalf. We can and should expect and pray for remarkable mercies. We tend to think, if we are to be holy, that we should only pray for things that make us sound holy. Certainly things like salvation, We pray for things we know to be outside of our grasp, but generally we do not pray for smaller mercies. But we can pray in many ways that God's mercy and faithfulness and love and glory would be manifest in our lives through the many works of kindnesses that He brings about. We should and can expect remarkable mercies. But the most remarkable mercy of all is that Christ has been sent. He who has been sent from heaven to save is the Son of God. Christ was sent by the Father to become for us our Savior, redemption. He is the one who tramples under His heel the enemy who would trample over us under His foot. When He says that He puts His enemies to shame, He puts to shame those who trample on us. He speaks, of course, of our greatest enemy. David here referring to Saul and his men, but forward looking to all of the enemies against his people and against God that he would put to shame. And so Christ's sins is sent from heaven by the Father to trample over, bruise the serpent's heel who seeks to trample us underfoot. This is the most remarkable mercy of all. And we can affirm and celebrate, friends, that God has sent from heaven salvation in Christ. And He has put to shame Him who tramples upon us. He has sent out His steadfast love and His faithfulness in Christ. And so the first aspect of God's character we see is that He is God most high. But secondly, God is seen to be unbeatable. In verse 4, the context is, David is in the midst of lions. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. This analogy for the children of man, whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. But his prayer is this, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over the earth. So David's answer to the enemies in the in the, in the sharp-fanged lions that are encircling him and waiting for him to misstep is that God would be exalted over the earth. See, he doesn't pray that God would simply smash his enemies, though he prays that elsewhere at times, but that God would be exalted over all things. Just stop and think about that impulse to pray. When our circumstances are frustratingly disappointing, when we are suffering or frustrated or angry 
or confused, our prayers typically is, fix this problem, O Lord. Be merciful to me by changing my circumstance. And there may be a time and a place and a measure in which we should pray for the changing of our circumstances according to the will and the mercy of God. But the impulse here is to fix the circumstance not simply by the changing of it, but by the redeeming of it. Because God, from the perspective of David, would be exalted above all things. And this exaltation above the heavens and the glory over the earth will necessarily include the submission of his enemies under the foot of Christ. So the phrase here is that God would be unbeatable. Not only is he most high, but he is unbeatable. He is the greatest of enemies, or he is greater than all enemies. The greatest of enemies are no match for the wonderful and the terrible glory of God. Go back to the Lord's Prayer. We begin by praying, Our Father in heaven. What is the next phrase? Hallowed be your name. So we recognize that the Lord acts from a position of power and authority in heaven. But the next thing we pray for, the next thing we say, is that God's name would be hallowed or glorified. That it would be made much of in our life and in His acting authoritatively and with power. And so God acts according to His mercy and authority. And because of this, He is unbeatable. But often God does not simply come in and destroy our enemies for us. But what the thread of the Bible is this, that the Lord is acting justly and mercifully to his people, but often through what I would call just providences. That there are ways in which God ordains and, and so orders the world that the wicked will get what is coming to them. That's a slow justice. But the Bible teaches us that that will come. And while we may work for, pray for, and bring about and practice justice, the Lord has so ordered the world through just providences that those who dig a pit will fall into it themselves. That's what it says in verse 6. That they set a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. It is heavy with grief. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. He's affirming that in the glory of the Lord, in the exaltation of God above all things, and especially including his enemies, that those who dug a pit for God's servant themselves fell into it through a series of God's providences. His just providences are often the ways that God works things together for the good of those who are called according to those who love him. So we should pray that God acts swiftly, boldly. We should pray that God brings justice in our land and in our life. But we also must be mindful that the primary way he does this is through the ordinary means of God's providence. That we trust that those who dig a pit themselves will fall into it. That those who seek to destroy the lives of the saints themselves will be destroyed, often by their own undoing. All of this leads us to the same prayer of David in verse 5, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Just consider the kind of God that we're referring to, this God most high, who is unbeatable, mighty warrior, strength, power, glory, beyond all other, off the charts, none can compare. This God bends himself, condescends to help, to save in Christ. And this is Christ. He is the glory of God, the radiance of of the glory and the beauty of God. And so he must be exalted above all things. 
So friends, David says that God is his refuge. And it's in this God, the God who is most high, one who is unbeatable and undefeatable, the one whose strength and power works for his people and not against them, is the one we must exalt and take refuge in. When's the last time you genuinely felt safe under the wings of God? When's the last time you considered that you needed protection under the wings of God? Or have you felt yourself capable of handling life circumstances on your own? Isn't our heart so prone to say, I've got this? You'll leave the big stuff to God, but those big things are really few and far between, and most of it is just self-reliance. Well, David tells us that God is his refuge. There is no other place that he could find safety or rest or hope except for God. God sends help. And so, friends, our greatest refuge comes in Christ. And our greatest hope is in the work of Christ and his ultimate deliverance from, uh, from sin. And so what we do, we trust, we praise, because Christ in his mercy offers to us that same hope, that same deliverance that David prays for. Be merciful to me. But notice what it says. If in verse 1 it says, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. Notice in verse 7 there is a double repeating here. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. So there's a change. Once he begins to pray in verse 5, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Your glory be over the earth. That you would, you would work just and providently in my life and in my enemies' lives. That you would bring about their own destruction. What's the result? He reaps the reward of his soul. So God here is not only the refuge of the soul, but God is the reward of the soul. He first cries out to God. He cries, he pleads in verse 2. And God hears and helps. And soon, David's cries are replaced with singing. He says, my heart is set fast, oh God, my heart is set fast. I will sing and make melody. David was a musician. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. This phrase, my glory, is a reference to his soul, to his whole being. So he's, he's calling himself to wake up out of the sleep of the temptation to doubt or mistrust God, but to remind himself, as he has been in this psalm, that God is faithful. He says, I will sing. I will sing of God's praise. Steadfast means fixed, firm unmoved. His heart is steadfast in the Lord, trusting in God's help sent from heaven. The turbulent waters of calamity and distress, he mentions in verse 1, now are stilled. Unmoored heart, threatened by destruction, now is tethered safely and harbored in Christ. This is the true reward that David prays for. It is joy, satisfaction, and belonging in God. This is why we sing. God not only is our refuge, but He is our reward. When we are saved by God, He does not simply change our circumstance and removes the threat, but He brings us into His own heart, the very essence of who He is, and He becomes for us our very reward. So the reward of faith is not a changing of our circumstances. It is the joy found in God. It is found in God Himself. And such praises and an outpouring of gratitude 
then reflect a heart that has received an abundance of mercy and has been stilled and contented with God. In other words, worship is the response. Worship is the true response to the reward of grace. God answers mercifully according to his steadfast love and faithfulness. He dispenses grace and gives it abundantly. And David is delivered and satisfied. And so the response is genuine worship to God. Praise and thanksgiving and singing and making glad in the name of the Lord. Worship is a true response to the reward of grace and mercy. So because God satisfies the longings of the heart, the condition of the body, or the circumstances of the soul, they become altogether different matters. David is not sure how much longer he stays in the cave or how much longer it will be until Saul is removed. He knows he himself will not be the one to bring Saul down, and so he trusts in time that God will answer and deliver upon his promises. He will fulfill his purpose for David. And yet the confidence he has in God leads him to sing and worship because of who he is. It is a heart that has received this abundance of mercy. He has been contented and satisfied in God, and so he worships as a reward of grace. Thankfulness and praise is the result of God's kindness. Our singing here in the mornings, our singing around our family worships, or our singing together in our gatherings is simply a way for us to remind ourselves of the gratitude we ought to possess for the work God has done for us in Christ. So we give thanks, we praise. This again leads us to exalt God. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Verse 11, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. A repetition there in verse 5. We are to exalt God for this kindness. Because he is the reward of our soul, because he has given us mercy and has brought us into his refuge under his wings, we become satisfied and grateful and out of thanksgiving and love we pour out worship because we have received God himself as the reward of our faith and trust. We exalt God. The praise of God's name and victory, notice in verse 10 and 9, is both an invitation and a warning to the watching world. He says that I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I sing praises to you among the nations. He's not simply content to be by himself in the cave to sing. He's not simply here talking about private worship, but worship which spills over into the congregation. He's thinking already of returning to the tabernacle, that he may give praise and worship God in the midst of the congregation, and even above that, to sing praises among the nations, that the whole world would receive and know the glory of God in the kindness and the mercy of God. Remember, the Lord is exalted in mercy. For when the Lord is gracious, the knowledge of his character and glory will spread over the earth, and all nations will bow down before this God who is merciful to his people. And so this praising of God's name and singing and declaration and thanksgiving, it is to us both an invitation to worship God for his mercy and his victory in Christ, but also a warning to the watching world who comes and rebels against Christ. You may not often think of our songs and our singing and our gatherings on Sunday as a warning to the world. And we want to, as much as possible, extend an invitation for those who are outside of the covenant of grace, those who are unfamiliar with the grace and the mercy of Christ as their Savior, to be brought into the fold. 
But we also must warn others. We must warn individuals of the peril of the condition of their soul outside of Christ. We cannot beat around the bush of the reality of hell, of condemnation, and of sin. That outside of Christ, it would be unloving us of us to say that they have any hope for redemption. We must remember that the warning is the same as the invitation. God is exalted and has sent help from heaven in Christ. Receive the help and you are saved. But refuse the help and there is no other salvation. What does Paul tell us? There is no other name in heaven or on earth by which man is saved but the name of Jesus Christ. Let me give you then just a few exhortations from the realms of God's glory and help. God is our refuge and God is our God is our refuge and God is our reward. But how do we how are we exhorted then by this psalm to live in light of those truths? Well, we can do this by considering three realms of God's help and glory. These realms are the realm of the individual, corporate, and cosmic. God, of course, is the God overall, but He is also the God and the Lord of each one of us, the God of foundation, our church, and the God of all creation, the cosmos. First, in the realm of the individual. Friends, know that the greatest threat against your happiness is not your enemy, but is your own sin. In many ways, because you are a sinner, the greatest threat to your own happiness and joy is you. It is your sinful condition which condemns you before a holy and just God. And so to cry out to God for His help to deliver you from circumstances and distresses, but not for the salvation of your soul, it's not only hypocritical, it's actually completely absurd. You must cry out to the Lord who alone can save you. What good is it, Jesus says, for a man to gain the whole world, but to lose his soul? But rather, you must lose yourself to find it, he says. What good is it? What is a profit, a man, if you become rich, and wealthy, and your circumstances are prosperous, and yet your soul is not saved. None of the prosperity and the riches can you take with you. You will be judged according to the rebellion against the Lord. And so it's common for those, even unbelievers, to cry out to God in the midst of their distresses. I think that's, a, that's an instinct that's right. Made in the image of God, we immediately recognize there's a power greater to us when we no longer can really feel like we can control it. But what often happens? You make a quick deal with the Lord. If it gets you out of this situation, you'll promise you'll go to church. You'll start living right. You'll quit smoking. You'll do whatever. And then three months later, you're back to your old ways. We tend to think that God is just our, our, our make it easy button to solve this problem button but the rest we have for ourselves. But that's, that's not at all what is most important. It's absurd to cry out for God for the help of our situations when we do not yet call out to God for the help of our soul. The greatest problem is not an enemy who waits outside the mouth of the cave for you to step out, but it's the sin which already has consumed you. And so we must pray as individuals 
that God is merciful to us in the redemption of our souls from sin. And so to the saved, to the Christians, those who have looked to Christ, who have put their faith and trust in the work of Christ on the cross to atone for your sins, who have, are believing, repenting, believing, accepting, walking in that faith, to you I say, from the psalm, be humbled that God has saved you. Read Psalm 57 and say, I have cried out to the God Most High. He has fulfilled His purpose for me. He has sent from heaven and saved me. He has put my enemies to shame who sought to trample me underfoot, but he was crushed under his heel. God has sent out his steadfast love and faithfulness to the Christian worship and praise Christ and be humbled for God's mercy. To the suffering, those currently in distress who feels like David, they're being tossed in the tempest of the raging waters, that God's enemies are seeking their life, that their own sin has created a situation in which they're burdened by the, 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 the weight of destruction around them. To the suffering, I say, be confident that God can save you. We as Christians are humble that God has saved us. To the suffering, we must be confident that God can save us. David here is not doubting of God's goodness or confidence. He is sure that God will send and save. In the midst of your trials, whatever it may be, however big or small, be confident that God can save. He is your refuge and your reward. So it may be in the loss of a loved one, the suffering of those in the world around you, it could just simply be that you're just not getting as much sleep as you used to because babies, right? It's a form of suffering. Be confident that God is your refuge. That he can save you from those situations. If first you have put your faith and trust in God for the salvation of your souls, how much more then will he not work for your good according to his will and purposes? So be humble that God has saved you, Christian. Suffering those who are, who are in the midst of distresses, be confident that God can save you. But let me speak then to the self-reliant. The, the warning then is that God may not save you. If you persist in your self-reliance, that you can work salvation for yourself, that you can defeat the enemies yourself, the greatest enemy of death, that you have the power over it, God will not save you. Now, I'm not making any statement about the election or the predest... I'm not making anything. But if you persist in your self-reliance, which is by definition to refuse help and dependence that God offers in the gift of Christ sent from heaven, you will not be saved from your distress you will be brought under the waters of destruction. You will not safely be placed into the ark of God's covenant who keeps us from destruction of judgment. So examine your heart, brothers and sisters, to see where you may be self-reliant or refusing to rely on God's help. It may be the case that if you persist in such self-reliance and refusal, God will not save you. You may have a fairly pleasant life, but the truth is that at the end of the day, God's judgment cannot be avoided. Each one of us will stand before him in judgment, and it is only if we are covered by Christ, who has been sent from God, that we will find salvation. So be warned. That's in the realm of the individual where I think the psalmist speaks to each one of us, but he also speaks corporately. This is a psalm that's often sung 
perhaps now within the temple according to a certain tune. It's, it is a song to be sung that praises and exalts us in Christ. So, so how are we exhorted corporately as a church? Well, we are told then to glory in Christ, to exalt Him with music that's befitting His nature and sacrifice. We want to be a singing, exalting church. We should sing songs that, that teach us and fill us with gratitude and thankfulness for what He has done. Songs that center on the glory in the person of Jesus, on the, the power and the wisdom of God in His work. Not, not ourselves. We're grateful for the personal experience we have of salvation, but our songs are to be sung corporately together. They are better for we and what God has done in us and for us through Christ. So the public worship and witness of the church, get this, is God's master plan of evangelism. Forget Ray Comfort. It is the church which God has provided to reach the world. It does not get us off the hook of evangelizing or sharing the gospel with our neighbors, but it is the church corporately as we praise and give witness to God for His redemption that He uses to speak, warn, and invite His people to Himself. So as a church we must be committed to glory in Christ by the singing, the praising, the witness, and the worship of God. Lastly, the cosmic realm is this, that we must submit all things to God as He is God over all creation, over all of the cosmos, the seen, the temporal, and the unseen. We must submit all things to God under His control, and we must accept all things as from his hand, even the distresses, even the, the, the difficult situations, even our suffering comes by God's hand and decree for our good. We do this knowing that all of God's purposes of redemption will be brought forth and fulfilled in time. We say we cry out to God who fulfills his purposes for us because he is the God over all. If he is God most high, we must submit all things to him. We must submit control of the world to him. We do not submit control to our individual selves. We must not submit ultimate control to our governments or to the nations. We submit ultimate control to God. Life is so ordered that God works through various means, but we recognize as the Lord above all, whose glory is to be over all the earth, all things are under subjection to Him. And therefore, we accept as from His hand all things. But God is working, as Romans 8 tells us, all things for the good of those who are called according to His purpose. Those who love Christ are working together for our good and His glory. So the means by which verse 5 and verse 11 come to fruition is that we submit ourselves and praise and recognize Christ as Lord over all, and we witness and declare the work of Jesus so that He may bring people to Himself, and God is exalted in His mercy. Remember, that was the idea. The Lord is exalted in His mercy. As we preach, proclaim, and witness to the mercy of God in Christ, he is exalted. And the death of Jesus, God is glorified. In the resurrection of Jesus, God is glorified. In the witness of the church, God is glorified. In the singing of the church, God is glorified. He is exalted above all, and His glory covers the earth when Christians around the earth witness and proclaim and sing to the glory 
and the worth of Christ. So friends, my last exhortation to you is this. This week, spend time considering God's mercy to you and how you may faithfully exult individually in the glory of God, corporately in the glory of God, and trust all things to the glory of God. For He is a God most high, undefeated, unbeatable, whose name is hallowed, and who sits in the heavens. This God is merciful and kind to His people. So we pray for that mercy, but we also know and have confidence that that mercy has come in Christ and continues to be dispensed through the ministry of Jesus on our behalf. Let's pray. Father, grateful to you and the work of your hand, I pray that our hearts would be indeed stirred in gratitude for the work of Christ. We see simply here in this psalm that you have sent help. In our distresses, in David's distress, you sent help. You, you've sent ultimate help for the redemption of the world. So our souls are saved, not by our own might or strength, not by the, the creativity of, uh, of a nation, but simply and only solely by your grace. So we pray with David to be merciful, O Lord. We pray that we would take refuge in you, that we would be contented in Christ who is our reward. And so real joy would flow and worship would flow and we would sing and praise and remind ourselves and give witness through our worship to the world. And through this witness and worship, you would be exalted above the heavens in our own lives, in our church, and in the nations. And that your glory would be over the earth but this is a promise that one day your glory will be over all the earth. So we pray for this day. We ask for help in the name of Christ. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com.